think a pioneer is someone that's willing to courageously explore and push the boundaries of what's currently presupposed in the popular social and cultural imagination. I think of someone who was not simply content staying in their own comfort zone. I think a pioneer is someone that pushes beyond what's normal. I've been training to be a healthcare disparities researcher and clinician. They push the limits of their own existence. They push the limits of the known knowledge at that time. I plan on becoming a black pioneer in the field of medicine by channeling my love for children and the field of pediatric medicine. Towards a future that's previously unexplored. Even though it sounds great to be the first person across the door, it does come with the downside of the people who held back the opportunities some of them must still be there. Being a pioneer means that you don't just have passions, but you create spaces or you find spaces where you can put that passion in places where they previously weren't. I'm going to create some form of new technique. I think of names such as Dr. James Durham. I plan on becoming a physician scientist. Dr. Ruth Temple. You know, trailblazers... I think at the core, you must be confident in yourself. So basically, I just plan on being great. A spirit that does not give up. I plan on becoming a pioneer by leaving a legacy. It's not enough to just be an African-American in medical school, but taking that back to high schoolers, taking that back to undergraduate people that are underrepresented in medicine and telling them that, hey, this is a pathway that you can explore because it's previously been pioneered. What makes one a pioneer? How do you plan to break new ground in your field? What service do you plan to provide your community? We wanted this episode to be a celebration, a thought exercise in education, but also a celebration of community. When we hear the word pioneer, we think of the lofty and patented, but the pioneers we selected for this episode, they are extraordinary in many ways, but primarily in their sense of responsibility to their communities. In this episode, you are about to receive a short tour through the history of but a few of these individuals. You are listening to A Medical History in Color. I'm Adrian, and full disclosure, I wanted to be an artist when I was a little girl. Look at you now. Right. And then a chemist at one point, too. My parents really liked that idea better, actually. I, okay, when I was little, little, like first grade, mm-hmm. I wanted to be a ballerina. Mm-hmm. When I came I to the U.S. and I saw, I was like, ooh, ballerinas. And then in third grade, I decided to become a neurosurgeon. What? Did yeah, you read Gifted Hands? I did read Gifted Hands. I had to do an essay on a famous person, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do Legolas from Lord of the Rings, but like Orlando Bloom. Okay, not Legolas. Not the Legolas. actual Legolas, okay. obviously. But Orlando Bloom, but there were no books written on Orlando Bloom, so my mom just like slid me. I think we could do without that. (laughs) My mom slid me Gifted Hands, Mm -hmm. and I read it, and I was like, oh my gosh. I wanted no parts of being a doctor when I was a little girl. Like, I wanted to be, like, the closest I could think of, like I said, was a chemist. Um, I definitely wanted to be, I think I also wanted to be a ballerina at some point. I definitely wanted to be an artist. I love to draw. I love to paint, that sort of thing. I think later I wanted to be a writer and I was like, I do not want to go to med school. Like even when I was in like my first like semi-professional program that was geared towards getting minorities into med school, actually a program here at Loma Linda University Myths, I still was like, no, 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 I'm going to be an English teacher or writer or anything else really. really. I mean, mm-hmm. for, bri- for a brief time in... I think eighth grade when like high school musical came out, I was like, I'm gonna be an actress. But then that quickly fell through. Did you tell your parents you're yeah, gonna be an actress? And they were like they're like, No, you're not. <laughs> that was my mom. I told her I wanted to be a writer and she was like, You're going to starve <laughs> Which is not necessarily the politically correct thing to say to your, your child who aspires to be a writer, but here we are. Yeah. So this episode we wanted to look a little bit more at pioneers in medicine. 
One of the things that comes up a lot when we think of pioneers, we think of them as these really polished people. Like I was saying in the intro, we think of them as polished and patented and they're naturally intelligent and gifted, whether it be physically, socially, intellectually. In this episode, we're hoping to humanize our pioneers some, familiarize you with their myths, but humanize them. They're people who are gifted, right? but they were also people who just saw a need and decided to be the one to fill that need. Mm -hmm. They're also people who didn't buy into the idea that black people were inferior. They vehemently rejected that idea actually. So to put this in perspective, in 1868, there were only 365 African-American physicians. Estimates place the population of African-American people at this time around 4.4 million. Mm -hmm. I think we also referred to that figure before in episode one. That means in the 1800s, for every one black physician, there were 12,000 black patients at this point in the 1800s. If we did our math right. If, yeah, if we did the math correctly. And remember, we talked about how people, how physicians see black patients at this time. So we're also assuming that the quality of healthcare they're receiving is being greatly impacted yep. by the absence or the dearth of black physicians, which is still the case. Mm-hmm. So as of 2018, there are 45,534 black physicians and the population of African-Americans in the U.S. is around 40 million, giving us one black physician for every 878 black people. Which is a lot better than, you know, the 1800s. Right. A lot better than previously. I also want to um, highlight again, though, that this is partly because of HBCU Mm -hmm. admissions. So Mm -hmm. even though the amount of black students enrolled in predominantly white universities and med schools has increased a lot of that number estimated around 80 percent of that number is still being produced by our three u.s hbcus wow what are the three there's howard howard Mary, and mm-hmm. then which was the other one charles drew oh yeah oh yes yeah. charles, charles drew, drew in la mm-hmm. um which is a what is it, our bridge, our brother, big sister, brother program with UCLA. Mm -hmm. So we gave you the earliest available data we can find of the ratio of black physicians to black patients. By the way, we meant three HBCUs that are medical schools, not three in total. Yeah, not three in total. That's actually a really good designation to make. So we gave you the earliest available data, like I was saying, and that we can find on the ratio of black physicians to black patients in the U.S., We're about to skip back a few years before that even. So remember, we're starting in the 1860s, and now we're gonna skip back to the 1840s when the US trains its first in-house black physician. So remember that dude, David Peck, that we talked about, and me and Martha were obviously really big fans of how his parents raised him, his activist parents. So he's the proud son of abolitionist parents, John and Sarah Peck. And remember, they're running all these businesses that they're using really as a front for underground railroad safe houses. Mm. So we talked about David Peck in episode one and David Peck was the first black American to earn a degree from a US school and practice in the US. So this was in the 1840s, specifically around 1846, 1847. However, after touring with Frederick Douglass and not having much success practicing in the US, David Peck takes on an interesting venture. He joins Martin Delaney and decides to start or resettle free blacks in Nicaragua, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, San Juan, Nicaragua in present day is the name of the city. But at the time they were calling it Greytown. So he founds Greytown with this Martin Delaney character. It's just really rude, Greytown? Yeah, I don't know who named it that. Ooh. But Martin Delaney, a little bit about him. So Martin Delaney is this guy who he's among one of the first three African-Americans to be enrolled in Harvard. And so this is Martin Delaney, Daniel Lang, and Isaac Snowden. Harvard, which we know is supposed to be the cutting edge of medicine, at this time still fancies this image and so is one of a few northern schools that is okay with the idea of admitting black students into medical school. However, that was not necessarily true of the white students attending Harvard. Hmm. So within only a few weeks of these three black students being enrolled, the white students or some of the white students petition Harvard to dismiss these students, saying that they do not want these people here, lowering the quality of their education. Like they That's are not so crazy, like a few weeks. Yes, they, they are not on board with it. They're like, I don't know what you were thinking, Harvard. I did not come here to be in school with these black people. We know the actual word, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna <laughs> say that. 
So Harvard, even then considered a liberal bastion, was not having it. Harvard students beseeched administration to dismiss the black students saying, we deem the admission of blacks to medical lectures highly detrimental to the interest and welfare of the institution of which we are members, calculated to lower its reputation in this and other parts of the country. The white students, from their perspective, they're not, these white students anyway, specifically, it, they're not being racist. They're trying to protect their investment. They're trying to make sure that the quality of their education remains airtight. And what better to diminish the quality of education? Let in black people. Let in black people to your institution. It's mm -hmm. something that honestly, an institution's reputation just cannot afford to suffer at this period of time. So much like we mentioned in our brief discussion towards the end of the last episode, you see here that black students are again being married to this idea in the racist imagination to the lowering of institutional standards. Implicit in this assertion is one's belief in inherent black intellectual inferiority. Upon being petitioned by its white students, Harvard ejected the young Martin Delaney and friends from school after only a few weeks. They would play a huge part in fomenting the sense of exclusion in Martin Delaney that would ultimately result in his effort to expatriate to Nicaragua. Martin Delaney would also go on to become a prolific and controversial black nationalist author. So the details of Martin Delaney and David Peck's effort to resettle Nicaragua are a little murky. You see, when we tell this story, it sounds really cool to make it seem like, oh, you know, like there are these freedom fighters who went to Nicaragua and they're just trying to resettle free black people there. They're trying to take the excellent and the best and the brightest of black people and basically create their own colony. They're like, we don't need the US. We don't need those US white people. We don't need Harvard. Forget all those people. And I love that idea in theory, right? Mm -hmm. But when you really think about it, were there people living in the Nicaragua colony before they got there? It's not as if it was blank and empty. And it was not. The natives at the time were already embroiled in a conflict with white people that had to try, <laughs> try to resettle <laughs> so Nicaragua. We just did the same thing. Yes. Then. So we took what is essentially a colonizer tactic and applied it to our struggle. Or Martin Delaney did. I'm not going to say us. Martin Delaney and his excellent black friends did. And they decided to try to resettle this place in Nicaragua that already had its own infrastructure and people. And the way this story is told, they tell the story as though the free black people helped the natives arrest control of the town away from the white settlers. So they came and they liberated the, the, I wish you guys could see me rolling my eyes right now. They came and liberated the native people. And like I said, I love that version. You're like, yes, they're going abroad and giving freedom to all people of color. But really, it's when you think about it, it mirrors exactly how we talk about, you know, white colonialists mm -hmm. going someplace else and deciding that they can bring value there using their own brand of excellence and smarts and superior strategy and ability to run a civilization. Mm -hmm. And Martin Delaney, to make matters worse, so Martin Delaney in arresting control from these white settlers or people who attempted to resettle Nicaragua who were white, he gets voted in as the mayor of Greytown. But ask me where Martin Delaney is at this time. Where? Martin Delaney is not even in Nicaragua. David Peck is in Nicaragua because he's the town physician at this point. Mm -hmm. Martin Delaney didn't even try to move to Nicaragua and live amongst the people and understand the people, but he was voted in as leader of this town. So they relocate there and David Peck is kind of his point person amongst other excellent free black people. So Martin Delaney is basically talking to all his excellent black friends and he's like, you need to get in on this Nicaragua trip. Like you go there, I'm gonna stay here in the US, try to get a few things patented. You let me know how let things know are- how it works out for you. <laughs> exactly, you but let I'm me know. I'm gonna stay here right? in the comfort of my home. Just, you know, brief me from day to day. Just call me on the phone, let me know how things are going. I'll help you make decisions. But I'm the mayor. But, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm the mayor. Because I'm the mayor, that's why you should brief me. But I'm staying here in the US mm, though. Okay. But I, I'm still the mayor. Mm -hmm. So he basically imports educated black Americans to provide the town's infrastructure. And I mean, you, you hear me and Martha going back about this. So you could decide yourself if this is just a novel strategy, right? To help black people find a place of their own, mm -hmm. or if it's just plain old colonialism, you guys can decide that. What's clear though, is that Delaney still felt some form of entitlement to his country of birth. He is quoted as saying, here is our nativity and we have the natural right to abide and be elevated through the measures of our own efforts. This conflict likely belied his reluctance to completely expatriate. Martin Delaney's final resting place would be here in the US, specifically Ohio. When Martin Delaney says that, I really, really feel that. Like when 
when I talk to other young black people mm-hmm. who have an more international presence and our international origins, like yourself, Martha, mm-hmm. I think to myself that while it would be great to go to another place and see other people and everybody is brown like me, everybody is black like me, this is actually my home. Like I have just as much right to be here as any white person or their forefathers who allegedly founded this soil mm-hmm. and built on it. My ancestors helped build this country and I deserve to be here and profit off of this country to a certain extent. No, I, I completely agree with you. Whenever there there are like um, racist issues in like the media, I always see comments like, oh, if you don't like it, go back to like Africa, go back to, go back to where you came from. And like, why should they, why should African-Americans go back? Like they literally built this country. You know how weird it would be? You know how people are protesting like the stay at home order right now? Mm-hmm. Imagine if like, black people decide to like write comments as if you don't like it go, <laughs> go back, back to your <laughs> <laughs> like that's crazy because we're like no this is your home like the whole reason this place is so profitable is because they had slaves helping them in the beginning we literally helping, built helping not helping assisting quotes, like forced assisting we literally built the white house yeah. Now, if someone told me to go back to my country, <laughs> then I was like, okay, I mean, you have a point. Bye! <laughs> I, I could go back to Ghana, but, like, someone who is, whose ancestors are from here, who who is African-American, deserves just as much as anybody else to be here, mm-hmm. as any other American. And this is what we keep saying about also being in medical school. We have just as much right to be here as anybody else who submitted their application and was admitted by the standards of their admitting body. (laughs) Their admitting body at their medical institution. Even though we've been discussing about belonging, Mm -hmm. Martin Delaney's uh, dissatisfaction with America and the way America was treating its blacks. Mm -hmm. He never found that sense of belonging. No, he never found that sense of belonging. So that's what sort of pushed his efforts to create space for black people to live in peace Mm -hmm. and this sort of illustrates why black americans and white abolitionists at that time created black institutions of learning Mm -hmm. so sometimes when we speak about social progress that's been made in the u.s we like to think that it was some sort of like moral enlightenment that people began to think that racism was a bad idea right they just woke up and was like oh my god right their hearts were like i can't believe what we've been doing to these people and some people did have that awakening yeah i mean we have white abolitionists then people became abolitionists and we have yeah Mm -hmm. so there are some people that had that but as a whole that wasn't the reason for social progress so an evolution in in this thinking came because of black Americans working their butts off to advance in the United States. Mm-hmm. Everything that is quote unquote given to blacks is something that they had to fight for. Mm-hmm. So whether they had to use, whether they had to fight physically, whether they had to fight intellectually or legal battles, they fought for their right to simply exist in spaces in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And because of this, they had to create their own avenues to get the same opportunities as their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get HBCUs. The HBCUs (laughs) we talked about before. Mm -hmm. So now we're in the 1860s and the first HBCU is founded in 1868, I believe. So, all right. Actually, let me slow down a little bit. HBCUs, we talked about them earlier. There's three medical HBCUs. We talked about Charles Drew University. We talked about Meharry and Howard. But the first of these is actually Howard University. So the Civil War ends in 1865 and gives birth to the Reconstruction Era. And this is supposed to be the area of radical racial progress in the U.S. where African-Americans are basically hitting the streets and fighting for their rights and making sure that they're getting education and health care, whatever else that they were denied mm-hmm. during the period of slavery. So you see, during the Civil War, Black Americans saw an opportunity that aligned with two specific convictions, that they were true Americans and had the right to protect this country, and that they were just as much capable Americans as any white Americans and therefore deserving of the same citizenship and rights. Mm. During the war, they served as medical officers and some were even appointed to the heads of military regiments and hospitals. One such black American pioneer is Dr. Alexander T. Augusta. Even with the strong sense of national duty instilled in African Americans, and even with the U.S. being perfectly fine with drafting African Americans to fight the Civil War for them, the U.S. still wanted to deny the opportunity of black physicians to serve 
as physicians in the Army Medical Corps, which is insane because you need doctors. If people have the skills, you should be willing to have them demonstrate those skills and then serve, you know, your recruits. But yet and still, they did not want to give those distinctions or those assignments to African-American physicians in the Army Medical Corps. But yet and still, Dr. Alexander T. Augusta is one of only eight Black American physicians allowed to serve in the Army Medical Corps as part of the 35th Regiment. And what I really like about this guy is that before the Civil War, he had already tried to get into medical school in the U.S. and been rejected on the grounds of his race. So remember, this is during a period of time where they're not letting Blacks into med schools in many parts throughout the South and in the Northeast. And he had actually applied to medical school in Chicago and Philly and had been denied. So he was like, okay, that's fine. And decides to go to Canada and get his medical degree from Trinity Medical College in Toronto, Canada. Then after he gets done with Trinity Medical College, he ends up actually being placed in charge of Toronto City Hospital. So he ends up running that hospital in Toronto, Canada. So yeah, this is a dude who not only is he a physician who before he even applied for medical school had served in medical apprenticeship. He's self-educated. He's born free. He applies to medical school, gets rejected, still manages to get into medical school in Canada and then ends up running in hospital. So he's not just your ordinary run of the mill doctor. He's someone who's essentially has experience in healthcare administration and in actually being a surgeon. He's a surgeon. So at age 38, Dr. Augusta joins the union as a surgeon with the rank of major. He gets placed in charge of the Free Advance Hospital in Washington, which at the time is known as Camp Barker. So this is, you know, your typical, I guess, military jargon for your different bases and stuff like that. So Camp Barker is where they're getting a lot of the recruits serviced with their health care. And even with being distinguished as surgeon and major, white physicians were still testing this man. Like there were dudes who did not have this experience, did not have his pedigree, and had decided even as assistant physicians to him, the major surgeon, that they did not want to take any sort of directions from a Negro physician. And because of their complaints, he ends up being restationed in Baltimore so that he can oversee the healthcare exclusively of black recruits. So stopping here, Dr. T. Augusta is challenged by his white colleagues. They challenge his competence. They challenge whether he has the right to lead them as the surgeon major. And on top of that, they are not even paying him what they would normally pay a physician serving in in this scenario. They're paying him like he's a regular army recruit and not one who is a major officer or a surgeon. He's being played like a normal black medical army recruit for the union services, which is wild. And honestly, it speaks a lot to his duty to serve black patients in this country. Because honestly, I don't know that many people, even amongst our colleagues now, and this includes myself, who would be perfectly okay knowing that I was getting paid that much less than my white colleagues, even with me having a larger distinction than them mm-hmm. being so like imagine if i was an attending but i was still getting like resident pay mm-hmm. like f- intern pay right but the rest of my attending my white attending colleagues are getting like attending pay. absolutely not no i wouldn't no 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 way <laughs> i wouldn't do it but this honestly again speaks to this idea that you have someone who's seeing a need and decides to meet this need because Who else is going to be providing good medical care to black army recruits if it's not going to be black physicians? And there's only eight of these black physicians amongst the army medical corps, even though they're fighting this war for America, for the union services. And then I guess for the Confederacy, but we're not talking about the Confederacy right now. (laughs) You have these people who might not be receiving the same health care as their white colleagues or white soldiers in the civil war at the period of time. And so he decides to step in and fill this need, which I think is actually pretty dope and speaks a lot to his character. One of the reasons why he's on our pioneer list. But the other reason why he's on our pioneer list is that he becomes after the civil war, one of the first black faculty members in the founding of Howard University. So Howard University is founded by some white abolitionists or anti-slavery doctors who actually are on Georgetown University's faculty. Mm -hmm. And they're like, okay, we want to specifically create a medical school to produce black physicians because they deserve to have this education all the same. And so Dr. Augusta, he ends up being the anatomy demonstrator and professor at Howard University, and he is the only black faculty member at the time of its founding. So this is in 1868. I mentioned Black Americans' resourcefulness. So part of this resourcefulness was in allying themselves politically with white abolitionists and opponents of slavery. White Americans who were allied to Black Americans were often themselves outsiders. They themselves received hostility from their white countrymen for being vocal and active advocates of Black Americans. Examples of this can be seen in founders of HBCUs. So ultimately, we talk about HBCUs, and they are, like I said, a symbol of 
African-Americans' resourcefulness, but they're also, to a certain extent, a symbol of an alliance that they mm -hmm. had with white abolitionists. And so the dude who actually founded Howard, one of the first HBCU med schools and later HBCUs period, is Dr. Silas L. Loomis. This is in 1868. Then a couple years later, we followed this up in 1876, and the Meharry brothers and friends, they're the founders of Meharry Medical College. And that is the first HBCU that's exclusive to black students. Because mind you, Howard was actually still admitting white and black students, even though it was geared towards increasing the number of black physicians. So speaking of filling a need, I want to talk about two people who created something or gave to research in something that black people couldn't benefit from at that time. They weren't able to benefit from. Mm -hmm. So the first person I want to talk about is Solomon Fuller, who was the first African-American psychiatrist. Mm. And since I want to do psych, I was, uh, I was excited to talk about him. I remember how somebody actually was asking you a little while ago, like, I'm talking a little bit more about the psych, the history of psych care and black patients. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like dabbling in that yeah. area a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Solomon Fuller was born in Liberia in 1872. Mm -hmm. So his grandfather was actually a slave in the US, but his grandfather bought the freedom of him and his wife, mm -hmm. and they moved to Liberia, immigrated to Liberia to establish an African-American settlement there. Okay. And so, but uh, Solomon moved back to the US to attend college. So he moved to US, he attended medical school at Boston University School of Medicine in mm -hmm. 1897. His major contribution is to Alzheimer's disease, at okay. least in the medical field as a whole. Mm -hmm. So he got to work with Allos Alzheimer's. So he he did postgrad at University of Munich where he mm -hmm. focused on neuropathology and then the Dr. Alzheimer chose him to be part of his research group which mm -hmm. there were only a few people a few people chosen he oh, was wow. the only black person mm -hmm. so he did that for a little bit this was at the royal psychiatric hospital of munich so <laughs> okay so um but for african americans what he did was focus on syphilis mm -hmm. he went to alabama and before the tuskegee experiments he actually researched on syphilis and he taught doctors how to diagnose syphilis at the Veterans Hospital in Tuskegee, Alabama. Which I'm sure probably was really helpful at the time because mm -hmm. I know me and you, we previously discussed how there were all these myths kind of circulating about what syphilis is doing to black bodies and syphilis only specifically ravaging black bodies mm -hmm. and how it doesn't even attack the brain because black people's brains are so small. small. <laughs> And whatever else. So you have this guy who basically comes in and intervenes and is like, hey, I'm going to teach you guys how to diagnose syphilis properly and objectively. <laughs> but, so my, you get, like you said, so the black doctor, he comes in mm -hmm. to train other doctors how to correctly diagnose syphilis. Mm -hmm. And then the government turns around and uses that same community that he was at teaching doctors to diagnose syphilis. Mm -hmm. The government uses that same community to conduct the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Wow. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That is, when I read it, I was like, what? <laughs> so you have a black doctor come and teach these other doctors about syphilis and then use that community to do your experiment. Wow. Okay. And then, moving on. <laughs> can never be surprised by the audacity. We go on to Charles Drew, who mm -hmm. is the father of the blood bank. So Charles Drew was born in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. in 1904. And at that time, Washington was still segregated. So they had, like, obviously they had the white communities and mm -hmm. African-American communities. But the African-American com African community that he grew up in was well-educated and pretty, like, well-off people. Mm -hmm. And they had really great schools. So he went to this, Dr. Drew went to this school called Stevens Elementary and then went to Dunbar High School where he was the, sort of the jock. He was like a popular athlete. Okay. Mm -hmm. He got varsity letter in four sports. He was voted best athlete, most popular student, Aww. and the student who had done the most for the school. So he was like... Mm -hmm your stereotypical you know in like tv shows where they show the black teenager as like the jock and really exactly. popular that's what charles drew was he was everybody's everybody's yeah. guy yeah everybody's mm -hmm. guy so medicine wasn't even in his mind at that point so in high school he thought he would become an electrical engineer mm -hmm. but he took a bio class and became biology class and became interested in medicine mm -hmm. so he applied to three med medical schools 
Howard, Harvard, and McGill University, mm-hmm. which was in Montreal, Canada. Mm-hmm. So Howard rejected him. Oh which wow! Is, yeah, and then um, because because Howard he didn't been blown up at this time. It's because he didn't have enough English credits. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. So Howard rejected him, and Harvard accepted him, but they wanted him to defer until the next year. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking they probably had their, you know, their black people limit. What's this period? This is early 1900s. Okay. Yeah. So, but he didn't want to wait because he was a go-getter, you mm-hmm. know. So he decided to apply to McGill University, which mm-hmm. had a a reputation of treating minorities better, anyway. Okay. So he he went there. They accepted him. He ended up he ended up graduating second in his class, and then he did a surgical residency, hmm. and he wanted to extend his surgery surgical residency to Mayo Clinic in the U.S., mm-hmm. but they didn't want him because uh, white patients refuse to be treated by black physicians. But there's like so much to say about this guy. Yeah. But to cut to the chase or to cut to the point. <laughs> His research was on the blood bank. So he created procedures for collecting, processing, and storing blood plasma. Mm. And then he became the assistant director of a national blood banking system supported by the National Research Council and the American Red Cross. So to be to be clear, this is an innovation that we're still using to and this profiting day. from. Mm-hmm. 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 And so... He also invented mobile blood donation stations. So you know how you sometimes see like the trucks, that right? Are, like, Every time we blood do blood donation. donation. Mm-hmm. He also invented that. And oh. so though he was the leading expert in blood banking, he mm-hmm. invented it. He wasn't allowed to donate blood because he was black. Interesting. So he invents all these innovations or comes up with all these innovations for how our country can supply blood, donate blood and supply blood to patients, Mm -hmm. but he actually can't donate blood. Nope. Because he's black and other black patients can't donate them either. No. So the Red Cross started this, their program in 1941 Mm -hmm. and they excluded African-Americans from donating blood until 1942. So in 1942, they were like, okay, fine, we'll take black blood. So they started taking African-American donations, Mm -hmm. but the blood had to be segregated. This is very interesting to me because, again, to refer back to some of our previous episodes, we talked a lot about how like a lot of medical innovation and a medical research is done on black bodies. Mm-hmm. So it's like on one hand, you're telling me that black bodies are at least similar enough to white bodies that to you experiment can, on to experiment them and extrapolate the results of experimentation from their bodies and onto white bodies. Mm-hmm. But you cannot have their blood. Mm-mm. You can't use their blood. Mm-mm. It had to be segregated. Okay. Yeah. So this policy wasn't changed until 1950. That's when they stopped segregating blood. Mm-hmm. And states in the South, obviously, always the South, but <laughs> states in the South like Louisiana, they didn't stop segregating blood until late 1960s, early 1970. Give you my blood anyway. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> and I mean, that's crazy to me because that's like we like to think of segregation as so long ago, mm-hmm. but like Louisiana didn't didn't end this until like the late 1960s yeah and this is not the first time we've talked about like something from the racist imagination creeping into present day i mean even when we were talking about grave robbing a couple episodes ago we were talking about grave robbing or robbing black people's graves in order Mm -hmm. to get cadavers for medical anatomy lab and i think i said that continued into the 1960s there's some people who estimate that continued even into the 1980s that we're robbing the bodies of black people from their churches and graveyards in order to supply anatomy labs that are not making the source of their cadavers available to a national registry crazy yeah but this was another example of something Mm -hmm. or a system or a program or research that a black person contributed to or created that Mm -hmm. black people couldn't partake in or couldn't benefit from. Mm. And even today, blood donations from African-Americans is actually very low. It's about 25 to 50% less than like white Americans. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it's understandable. Yes. There's obviously the mistrust in the healthcare system. I remember when I was in high school, my mom wouldn't let me donate blood. So they would do like blood donations in high school. Yeah, my mom wouldn't let me donate blood. She was like, don't go there because they're not going to take your blood. If Even if they take it, they're just going to throw it out. So even to this day, I've never donated blood. But now it's because of anemia or I traveled to Ghana. So I okay. can't donate blood. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And other reasons for lower 
rates of African Americans donating blood is because of high deferral rates than whites, having lower donor eligibility than whites. By deferral rates, you mean kind of backing out of mm-hmm. appointments? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then... That's why. Also, don't want them to have our blood. Also, that's true. But we we do need African-American blood. We do. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, please donate if you can. So remember how earlier Martha mentioned how Ben Carson was this inspiration for her? To, a childhood inspiration, right? To become a doctor. And I like to keep it on the download nowadays. I know. Yeah. It's very, yeah, very, yeah. very gauche. Don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> so... Ben Carson, and the thing is, you're not alone in that. I remember being in grade school and, you know, the people in my classes, there was every so often, there were definitely a crop of kids who wanted to announce to teachers, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. You (laughs) ask black students what doctor they wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Everyone wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. Ben Carson, we talk about him like he is the first black neurosurgeon. So he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that designation. He's a neurosurgeon who pioneered the separation of conjoined twins. Mm -hmm. And so in a way... His legacy has erased some of the legacy of those who preceded him. Because the truth of the matter is that Ben Carson is not the first black neurosurgeon. He's not nearly, not even by a long shot is he the first black neurosurgeon in the chronology. Nope. So the first, the first black neurosurgeon in the U.S. was Emmanuel Lutende Odeku. Mm-hmm. Forgive my pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he was born in Lagos in 1927, and he lived there until it was time to go to college. And he went to Howard University. I Yay. like it. Yeah, so he went to Howard. He graduated summa cum laude with a degree in zoology in 1950. Okay. And then he stayed at Howard to study medicine. So he went to Howard in undergrad, then went to Howard Medical School. And then he spent a year in UMich under a neurosurgeon called Edgar Edgar. A. Khan, mm-hmm. who at that time was chief of neurosurgery. The guy was so impressed with Dr. Deku, they offered him a residency. Hmm. Yeah. And this was in ni- from 1956 to 1960. And then he returned to Howard, mm-hmm. became an instructor of neuroanatomy and neurosurgery for a year, mm-hmm. and then he went back to Nigeria. Even though they had a ton of, like, people were giving him offers to come work. He wanted to he, go back. Yeah, he wanted to go back. And mm-hmm. side note, he was also a poet. That Aww. was cool. Yeah. That was him. The second one, which I'm really excited to talk about because mm-hmm. I actually met her in my, <laughs> in my quest to become a neurosurgeon. And yet you cannot recover these pictures, which is very sad. Uh, I met her when I was in high school. So this is Dr. Alexa N. Kennedy. Okay. She is a pediatric neurosurgeon and she is technically the first African-American neurosurgeon. All right. Because Dr. Odeku was... African, but trained in the U.S. Right. But this is the first African-American right. neurosurgeon. And if you look her up, they like to designate her as the first female African-American neurosurgeon, but she is just the first, first. African-American mm-hmm. neurosurgeon mm-hmm. trained in the U.S. and born in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as a black American. Mm-hmm. She was born in Lansing in 1950, mm-hmm. and her parents taught her the importance of hard work, and like she worked hard, she graduated with honors, then she went to the University of Michigan to study mathematics. But while she was there, and I remember I was, I was there when she was telling us this story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So while she was there, she told us, that she really struggled and almost dropped out of school. Mm. She said she lost her confidence in herself, her grades were become, were beginning to suffer, and she was just really struggling at that point. But she became interested in medicine during her junior year when she ended up working for a genetics lab and helped at a genetic counseling clinic. Mm. So remember, she came in for mathematics, yes. but because of this lab, she became interested in medicine. Mm-hmm. So she ended up graduating from UMitch in 1971 with a bachelor's in zoology okay yeah which and this is about what like maybe a year or so before ben carson graduates from university of michigan right actually we'll get back to ben carson yeah it's yeah. done yeah so she graduated from umich in 1971 with mm-hmm. a bachelor's in zoology which is the same degree that dr deku also graduated a degree in zoology from Howard. Yeah, I thought it was cute. Anyways, so she went on to University of Michigan Medical School, mm-hmm. graduated cum laude. Mm-hmm. She graduated cum laude in 1975 and then went to Yale New Haven Hospital in 1975 mm-hmm. after graduating. And even though she went through medical school, she did well, and she got into residency fair and square, on her first day while she was with a patient, a top hospital administrator walked by and said, oh, 
you must be our new equal opportunity package. Wow. Those are fighting words. Imagine. Those are actually fighting words. Like, how, not only do you say this to her, you say this to her while she's with a patient. Hmm. Like, degrading her in front of her patient, that's so disrespectful. Like, that was already disrespectful enough. Yes. And then to do it in front of a patient. Like, as a medical student, I absolutely dislike it. I was going to use it. (laughs) Absolutely. I really dislike it when doctors pimp you in front of patients right. because if you don't know the answer you look so bad and especially a black medical student where you in my head i already know the preconceived notions that people may have mm-hmm. so i feel this urge to really prove myself and i get like really panicky and then to do that in front of a patient it just yeah it almost feels like they're trying to demonstrate that you don't belong yeah. here even if it's not necessarily to, coming yeah. from that place yeah so I thought that was very disrespectful. And even though she like went through this and he said this to her, she ended up becoming chief of neurosurgery mm-hmm. at the Children's Hospital of Michigan in 1987. Okay. She was only 37 years old. So she's a pediatric neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And became chief at 37, which I thought is very impressive. And she did so until she retired in 2001. Okay. And she did an interview and she talked about her biggest obstacle And she said that her biggest obstacles were convincing the neurosurgery chairman that I was not a risk to drop out or be fired. Mm. Wow. Yeah. She said, I was the first African-American woman in the department. Along with that, my greatest obstacle was convincing myself that someone would give me a chance to work as a neurosurgeon. So really struggling with her confidence, having decided she was going to go into that specialty. Like these are still all things that we struggle with Mm -hmm. as black students, even when you're, you know, by most objective measures, a really high performing student. Mm -hmm. I know another thing that kind of admittedly bothered me about her story is that, you know, like I said, we talk about Ben Carson's legacy, but this is a woman who literally went to the same medical school as him and then preceded him in neurosurgeon training by a whole, what, year to two years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's not, her name is not a household name in the same way. And it kind of made me feel as though you see this kind of erasure of black woman pioneers in this story. Like Mm -hmm. even a lot of these names that we've gone through, we found them in a Negro history of medicine or they're Mm -hmm. referred to at least in passing in a Negro history of medicine. And I was so taken aback that in reading that book, there were only maybe one or two black women mentioned in the whole book, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. Like we didn't necessarily get to talk about the first female black physician we don't get to talk about there's just so many things that don't even really get brought up and then the only two black women who are brought up in the book are nurses so a lot of this pioneering is Mm -hmm. kind of put in the realm of the masculine still even for Mm -hmm. african-american people you still Mm -hmm. see that there's this intersection between like yes oppression of black people Mm -hmm. but then kind of that oppression and silencing and erasure of black Black women women in this narrative that definitely bothered me about her story like i found out about her and i was like what do you she went to the same medical school as Ben Carson and this woman is not known in the same vein as him. So to review, we start in the 1840s to 60s with David Peck, the first black American student to train and earn his MD in the US, and his colleague Martin Delaney, among the first three African-Americans to gain admission to Harvard Medical School. Sadly, he does not end up earning his degree there because he's ejected due to racism. So his ejection from Harvard Medical School spurs his activism and he pioneers a movement to resettle free black people in the US. Then we hit the period of the Civil War. Blacks gain a lot of professional traction during this period, which makes way for them to gain even more professional ground after the Civil War and during the era of Reconstruction. So during this period, we talked about Alexander Augusta, who goes on to become one of the first black faculty members on Howard Medical School's faculty as the anatomy professor and demonstrator. Before this period, he's serving in the Army Medical Corps and he basically leaves the Civil War and the Army with distinction. He becomes a Lieutenant Colonel by the end of his time in the Civil War. Then we talk about Meharry's founding in 1876, right after Alexander T. Augusta is part of the founding of Howard in 1868. We then discussed how Dr. Fuller and Dr. Drew both contributed to medicine. For Fuller, it was through novel research into Alzheimer's and syphilis, and for Dr. Drew, it was via his contribution as an innovator in medical technology. He invented the blood bank and mobile blood bank units. Both of these contributions were not able to be used by Black people because apparently Black blood 
is not was not accepted at this time due to racism racist beliefs about black people so then we have dr odeku who's the first black african neurosurgeon educated in the u.s who went to howard when he was done training came back to howard to teach eventually he went home to become the first neurosurgeon in west africa after him we discussed dr alexa kennedy who was the first black american neurosurgeon who doubted herself throughout her entire time training she was doubted by her colleagues but yet and still she still goes on to become the chief neurosurgeon at the children's hospital in michigan after training in neurosurgery residency at yale university and the thing is setting the precedent for dr alexa kennedy to become this groundbreaking black and female pediatric neurosurgeon is her predecessor rebecca lee crumpler so martha and i were dismayed to find that in reading negro history and medicine there is a not so subtle erasure of black women and their pioneering contributions. In fact, throughout the entire book, there's only what black women maybe mentioned twice and both of those black women were nurses. So pioneers in the nursing movement and the movement of nurses to gain more professional rights to practice in the US. This book doesn't even really mention Rebecca Lee Crumpler, if I remember correctly. And the sad thing is there's no known photographs of her circulating, but she is the first black female to be trained as a physician in 1860. We wanted to discuss black pioneers in infectious diseases mm -hmm. since we're in a time of COVID. Yes. So the first one we're going to talk about is William Augustus Hinton. Mm. So he was born in Chicago, which is, by the way, my favorite city in the world. <laughs> he was born in Chicago in 1883, and he was a child of two former freed slaves. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he, but he grew up in Kansas. There's a lot and of privilege you kind of see here too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's several people that we talked about who they're as privileged as I guess you could be as a black person at the time. Right. They're born mm -hmm. free mm -hmm. or they're fair skinned or whatever number of things, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. So he grew up in Kansas and he started undergrad in Kansas. But then he transferred to Harvard and graduated in 1905. Mm -hmm. So in 1909, he went to Harvard Medical School and they offered him this scholarship called the Hayden Scholarship which was reserved for African-American students. Mm -hmm. But he declined it and instead competed for the Wigglesworth, this is so weird, the Wigglesworth, <laughs> the Wigglesworth Scholarship, which is open to all Harvard students. Hmm. And he won two years in a row. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he like was like, no, I'm not going to take your scholarship that you only give it to black students. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then on top of that, he graduated with honors in three years. This guy, wow, okay. But despite all of that, all that achievement, he was not given a medical internship because he was black. Mm. So he had to work part-time as a volunteer lab assistant in the pathology lab at Massachusetts General Hospital. That's another thing actually too, like if I could stop here a moment, I think we've talked a lot about how hard it was for African-American people to get the same professional recognition as physicians. And then when they finally do start getting recognition as physicians, you have to understand that racism again evolves and changes mm -hmm. form. And so now even when black people are getting these MDs, whether it be from abroad or in the US, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to get a residency okay. spot. I would be livid livid mm -hmm. okay let's continue so he worked as a volunteer lab assistant that's that's even the crazy part okay. he wasn't i mean he still got paid but he wasn't he was an md working he as was a an lab MD assistant working as a lab assistant so that was my job before i started medical school that's like you know that's the way that you dip yeah. your toe in the water when you're like oh, okay i want to take off a year i'm a non-traditional student mm -hmm. and you become a research assistant so he's a whole md mm -hmm. as a research assistant yeah. because he would not be hired for internship. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I feel like I need to preach here because, <laughs> like, people try to block your blessings. Mm -hmm. But if God is going to bless you, he's going to bless you. Right. So let, let's see what happens. So three years later, he has this thing with three years. He graduates med school in three years. Mm -hmm. And then three years later, he becomes the lab director for the Massachusetts State Department of Health. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And then because of him being in the lab, is how he was able to make great strides in infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. So he focused mainly on the diagnosis and treatment mm. of syphilis. And he created what is called the Hinton test, which at that time was the most accurate 
diagnostic test to to test for syphilis. Mm. And then he founded a school for women lab techs. Yeah. Oh. Just just only for women. So, so he's really for the yeah. people. He's like, not just for black men, mm-hmm. not just for, you know, any particular type of black people. He said, I want yeah. us all to have things. He I got like it. I dig it. a school for women lab techs so they can, like, get jobs. I, I thought that was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then he became the first African-American to publish a medical textbook. Okay. And it was called Syphilis and Its Treatment. He returned to Harvard mm-hmm. in 1918 and started teaching PrevMed and hygiene. Mm-hmm. And then in 1921... He taught bacteriology and immunology as an instructor. Mm-hmm. But sadly, even though he had all these things, like all these accolades, like he graduated with honors, even though he didn't get a residency, he went into a lab as an assistant, but three years he ended up being director. And mm-hmm. then because of his lab research, he created all these strides in syphilis research. Mm-hmm. But he only got promoted to clinical professor. It's like a full professorship. In 1949, oh, wow. a year before he retired. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is interesting. Yeah. A year before he retired. Like this... he did all this stuff to benefit medicine and Harvard didn't even give him full professorship. We set out to humanize our pioneers and show that while gifted, they were remarkable in their willingness to meet an unfilled community need. And that's in vain, Martha and I wanted to talk about a few of these pioneers that are closer to the present. With the current COVID-19 pandemic spotlighting the health inequities that exist between black communities and white ones, there have been natural comparisons to the HIV epidemic's disproportionate toll on the black community. Seeing this, Kimberly Smith was just one researcher that wanted to dedicate her career to studying HIV and fighting it in the black community. So Dr. Kimberly Smith, she currently serves as the Vice President of Global Strategy at Viv Healthcare, which is basically a pharmaceutical company that's dedicated exclusively to tailoring therapies for HIV and AIDS patients. At the time, Dr. Kimberly Smith was still a pre-med. The media largely focused on how the white gay community was being affected by HIV, albeit even that took time to gain traction because remember, the gay community is also a marginalized community. So at the time, people were like, why, you're living this lifestyle you know, you get what you get, basically. You're doing Mm -hmm. drugs, you get what you get. So that was the stereotypes and the things that accompanied HIV. And there was even a group of people who were HIV deniers, much in the same way we have COVID-19 deniers. So HIV is ravaging the black community. And Dr. Kimberly Smith sees this. This narrative was not making headlines at all. So again, we're reporting on like white gay people being affected by HIV when we do finally start reporting about it, but they're not talking about how this disease is ravaging the black community and how black women are at a higher risk for HIV infection. So as a physician scientist and public health champion, Dr. Kimberly Smith sought to advance research on this population, meeting a need for several marginalized groups affected by the AIDS epidemic, which sounds kind of familiar. It sounds again, like black women kind of coming in and (laughs) saving the day, but you know, Along with her, there's also Dr. Adora Adimora. So Dr. Adora Adimora, she was raised in Manhattan and attended Cornell University, where she actually received her BA in psychology. And then she went to Yale for med school, and she thought she was going to do psychiatry. So she was actually interested in psychiatry, but she ended up doing her residency in infectious disease. She later moved to North Carolina where she started research working working for the University of North Carolina, and she started focusing on HIV. Mm-hmm. So basically, she studies social, behavioral, and biomedical factors that influence the risk of acquiring HIV mm-hmm. and other sexually transmitted diseases. But before these two ladies, now I couldn't find much about these two doctors, but I did want to give them a shout out because they were really vital to the early mm-hmm. research about HIV. So they're doctors in Gailey, Bosnegi and Kapita Bila Min- Minlangu. And there isn't much about them, as I said already, but what is written reflects how important their contribution was to, the H- um, to HIV AIDS knowledge. So along with a white American doctor called Dr. Jonathan Mann, they were co-leaders in a project called Project CETA, which like backwards is AIDS. I thought that was clever. (laughs) Project CETA. And a lot of what medicine knows about HIV AIDS can be traced back to the research done by these doctors. Mm. So Dr. Bosanegi championed for changes in practices that increase HIV transmission rates like blood transfusions. Mm -hmm. 
And then Dr. Minlangu was credited as being one of the first African doctors to recognize HIV AIDS. Mm. And the research he was part of, which was published in The Lancet in 1984, proved that HIV AIDS wasn't a gay disease. Mm -hmm. It proved that anyone, regardless of gender or sexuality, could contract the virus. Mm. So when I listen to us talk about these people and I look up these people, I definitely wonder if it's that black people are more community health conscious, right? Because mm -hmm. you have black people, they become physicians, public health advocates. And when we're looking at our pioneers from like the 1800s and 1900s, we're seeing this definite trend of, okay, if nobody is going to do this for my people, I'm, I'm going to do, do this it. for my people, mm -hmm. even if people are telling me I'm technically not allowed to do it. So it definitely makes me wonder. We can't objectively answer this question, right? We can't objectively say black people are absolutely more public health conscious. I feel like that would be really biased. I would love to say that, <laughs> but we can't actually say that. But we can look at how black physicians contributed to better community health for black people and mm -hmm. disadvantaged groups in the U.S. at large. Mm -hmm. The thing is, this has actually been backed by research. So in 1993, UCSF study published in a New England Journal of Medicine showed that black physicians on average were more likely to serve areas with larger numbers of black and Hispanic patients. Black people are making up the bulk of a primary care workforce that's already already like short physicians mm -hmm. from what we know. So the paper quotes, communities with high proportions of black and Hispanic residents were four times as likely as others to have a shortage of physicians, regardless of community income. Black physicians practiced in areas where the percentage of black residents was nearly five times as high on average. Five times? Five times wow. as high on average as in areas where other physicians practice, so non-Black and non-Hispanic physicians. Mm -hmm. Hispanic physicians practice in areas where the percentage of Hispanic residents was twice as high as in areas where other physicians practice. Again, like I said, this is something that you're seeing continue back to research. Another study, similarly, a Stanford University study published in 2018 found that Black men were more likely to consent to preventive services when they were being treated by a Black doctor. I've heard similar studies quote that just having a Black doctor in the room improves patient outcomes. But in this specific Stanford study, they found that Black people, Black men specifically, were more likely to take preventive medicine recommendations from doctors when they were black doctors. So if you race match them and they said, hey, I think you should exercise more. I think you should change this about your diet, that they were found to take 100% of these measures versus- Are you saying 100%? Yes, versus with non-black physicians, they would have agreed to maybe to like, maybe to somewhere between 40 and 60% of these measures. Oh, wow. So conversely, black doctors were more likely to take detailed notes and get more extensive health histories on black patients. Mm. So it's not only about how the black patient is perceiving their physician, the physician is also perceiving their patient differently when they are coming from the same background and the same experience. So they're delving into their health history a lot more, delving into their family history, they're asking questions that they're actually getting better answers for. Mm -hmm. And so the study did not chalk this up specifically to, oh, it's just like this nebulous effect of a black patient and a black physician interacting, but rather that there was enhanced communication when you had people coming from the same background mm -hmm. in the patient-physician interaction, which I think is kind of intuitive when you think about it. So why is this important? Researchers estimated that the effects seen from race matching physicians and patients could close the cardiovascular mortality gap between white and black patients by as much as 19%, just with them taking more of these measures from black physicians, just because they were more willing to communicate and take preventative medicine advice from a doctor they trusted. That is the implication of narrowing the black patient to black physician ratio. When we talk about this ratio that me and Martha mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it's not just about, oh, it would be nice to see more black doctors. Oh, I want to see more black doctors in white coats. Like, oh, I just want to see a physician that look at, looks like me because it warms my heart. There's actual historical things that are informing how black patients, minority patients, are seeing their physician. And there's nuances to the patient-physician dynamic that are determining how effective this dynamic is. Like, mm -hmm. how, effective it, how effective it is at getting to the bottom and a root of a patient's illness. So I thought that study was actually really cool. Anecdotally, I feel like I've also experienced this. I remember when I was on my psych rotation, I found that patients seemed to give me an inherent trust. So this was at the VA hospital and there was a high population of black patients. I found that patients seemed more willing to give me an inherent trust, whereas I felt like a lot of the time, even with white residents and people who are more experienced with me, they had to work to earn their trust. Mm -hmm. I think I've also experienced that. I think when I was in PEDS, there, there was this kid who just, she'd been in the hospital for a while. Mm -hmm. So she was just fed up with everyone and wasn't really trying to talk to anybody. But she wasn't my patient, so I didn't see her regularly. 
But there was one time where I was on call, so I had to go see her. And we had a great time. She mm-hmm. talked to me, like, and when I told my classmates about it, they were so surprised. They're like, what? How in the world did you get her to and talk to you? people will say these are problem patients, too. And yeah. Like, oh, he's really difficult. He doesn't like to talk to the doctors. I'm like, he doesn't like to talk to you. you. <laughs> I was like, she was great to me. We had lots of fun. And when I went there, I went back with my classmate in the morning, like, the next day to go see her. Mm-hmm. And, like... <laughs> When my classmate walked in, she just you know gave her a flat look. But then when she saw me, she like waved to me and smiled, and she was very. My classmate was very jealous. But I was like, she's not a difficult patient, right? right? So my theory is based on all of the research that we've been kind of sifting through. Black Americans have evolved to become community and public health conscious practitioners out of necessity. Mm -hmm. While advocating for themselves, they became natural champions for other disadvantaged groups with poor access to health care, which makes sense because when you're looking at the way that legislation works in this country, you can't just say this would be good for black people, so we should do it. A lot of the time you have to talk about a greater community good. So that means that you're bringing up poor white people with us. You're bringing up the LGBTQ community with us. You're bringing up the Hispanic community. So they're evolving to be these practitioners because when you really look at it, nobody was going to do that work for our communities, Mm -hmm. but us white doctors were not willing to delve into the things that made black patients sick the same way. They were willing to chalk them up to all sorts of things, but primarily their inferiority, which we're going to get into in another episode, but they weren't really willing to investigate the causes of patients or black patients illnesses the same way. And you kind of see that same ennui or kind of apathy still sometimes with white physicians Mm -hmm. and black patients. So black practitioners immediately made it their priority to serve as black people upon becoming credentialed. So the minute that they're getting these credentials, getting this MD, they're saying, how can I give back to my community? How can I make sure that I'm doing a service for black soldiers, black women, black children, whoever it is that I need to do it for? So as we saw in the last episode, even when not credentialed, black practitioners felt responsibility to serve black communities and even white ones when it came to maternal health. You see this trend in our pioneers. Black people practiced and took care of sick black people, but they also shared their contributions with those besides black people that the US society did not privilege. Poor whites, drug users, like I said, the LGBTQ community, other people who were the untouchables in a community or a Western community that privileged whiteness. Mm -hmm. These are still disadvantaged groups in healthcare that physicians of color advocate for in their practice to this day. That's true. So from David Peck to the more contemporary doctors such as doctors Kimberly Smith and Adora Adimora, our medical pioneers have paved the way for their respective communities as well as the people coming after them, Mm -hmm. like you and I. Yes. They gave back in some way to the community that they were part of. So, Adrian, big question. How will you be a pioneer in medicine? How will you like pioneer a way that pushes the black community forward and also mm-hmm. makes it easier for the next generation of doctors coming behind you? I know I asked this question all willy-nilly <laughs> and I expected an answer from everyone, but this is actually really hard for me to think of. Mm-hmm. But the first thing I think of is that when you have a community that's taking care of its woman, you have a community that's going to move forward. Mm-hmm. And so when I think of being a pioneer in medicine, I always know that whatever I'm going to do, I want to make sure that I'm taking care of black women and creating more space for women who look like me, Mm -hmm. not just women who meet like a very narrow definition of an acceptable blackness, Mm -hmm. but even women who are unacceptably black, women who are unapologetically black, women who are rambunctiously black, women who are not allowed to speak up in certain spaces Mm -hmm. allegedly and still be able to get a certain level of success. I definitely want to create more space for those women. But more than that, I know that I definitely want to show that there is room to talk about my blackness in these spaces too. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to create a space in which more med students are telling their stories. Mm -hmm. Like I definitely want to pioneer that because I think a lot of the time in medicine, we talk a lot about how you can't say this thing or it might come back to haunt you professionally. You can't say that thing or program directors aren't going to want you. You can't Mm -hmm. say this thing or it'll be professional. And I think that weighs a lot more heavily on black students, I imagine. I think that we feel like we have to do a lot to get along and almost thank people for letting us be in this space. Like, oh, well, thank God they even let me be here. Mm -hmm. And I definitely want to pioneer more of an honest, authentic storytelling when it comes to black students, black medical students, black trainees, black residents. Like, that's what I want to pioneer. That's what I want to do. I want there to be an information sharing, the likes of which this world has never seen. (laughs) I want it to be authentic and honest and open and much easier than it is now. Mm Wow, it sounds so profound. Mine, I think mine, <laughs> mine is pretty 
simple. I feel like yours is very grand. You know, that just probably says something about my delusions. Like my own delusions <laughs> of grandeur. So don't, don't read into that too much. For me, once I pay off this uh, crippling med school debt mm -hmm. and I make some money, I want to start a scholarship for international students mm -hmm. at LLU. And that's my, that's my like, small project but i think my grander mm -hmm. view is you know i'm going into psychiatry and what i really want to do is i want to return back home to ghana and mm -hmm. i want to completely revolutionize the way mental health is understood and treated mm -hmm. there so i want to tackle like stigma misunderstandings ethical issues with mental health in Ghana, that's where my, uh, my uh, degree comes in, my uh, ethics degree comes in. So hopefully like the government will take me seriously because yeah, I have I'm an sure ethics they degree. Will. It's an American degree too. <laughs> and I hope to be able to work with hospitals to implement better policies and maybe build my own psych hospital. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully in like my wildest dreams, it these policies and these changes I make in Ghana will like spread out to the rest of Africa. Mm -hmm. So... When I think about tying this episode together, I really wanted this episode to be a thought exercise for everyone listening and to remember that pioneering is not just about patenting something where you're making millions of dollars. It's not just about, you know, being an outright revolutionary who, you know, people are writing about you in history books a certain way. Like mm -hmm. the people that we're seeing in our history books, they're people who are seeing a need and are thinking to themselves, how do I serve the people around me? How do I serve people who look like me? How do I create a world that is balanced and equitable and accepting and for people like me? How do I make sure the people around me are healthy, happy, mm -hmm. stable? And that's really what I wanted people to take away from some of the things that we reviewed for the pioneers. You're not just here to make your money and become a doctor and buy a nice house. You're here to pioneer and to open space and pave the way for other people behind you. Subscribe, comment, review, review. give us detailed reviews detailed feed feedback so we can do better don't just text me even though i like i like the text but i love it when i see actual like concrete Con reviews mm -hmm. on the platforms that we're posting on and rate us five stars exactly. if you could rate us reach out to us and also tell us about your experiences because again like i said i want this to be a storytelling platform i want to tell black students stories not just my story not just martha's story but a little bit everybody's story We just want to give a plug for my friend and classmate, Samantha and Devon. They co-wrote a book called Why We Stay Home, Susie Learns About Coronavirus. And the book is doing so well. It's going to be a series which highlights different specialties and focuses on African-American doctors. The book is free for download. So if you go mm -hmm. to their Instagram, it's Millie and Susie, M-I-L-L-I-E and Suzy, S-U-Z-I-E. Follow them and click the link to download it for free.